Welcome to Copyright Clearance and his podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, August 17th, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer who joins me today from New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Greetings, Chris. So in next week's issue, Andrew, PW goes behind the recent AAP sales estimates for 2017, which we have discussed on this program before. And while the overall numbers from the Association of American Publishers suggest a stable market for books, some of the trends are raising eyebrows. Yeah, well, as we discussed a few weeks ago, the AAP estimates do suggest a rather stable book business with sales really only marginally down in 2017. But as uh, my editor and boss Jim Milliot notes in Monday's issues, if you look more broadly, those small declines do add up. And in fact, the small dip in overall 2017 revenues for the book business marks the third consecutive year of sales dips. And overall, AAP stats suggest that revenues are down about 6% between 2014 and 2017, and 6% is not an insignificant figure. Now, let's be clear, we're talking about overall sales here. If there is a little bit of good news, it comes from the trade segment, which is really mostly what we focus on here on this program. That was the only segment, according to the AAP, that actually recorded gains over that three-year period. In fact, between 2014 and 2017, while overall industry sales fell 6%, trade sales managed to rise 3.4%. Now, according to AAP stats, those losses were driven by the other three segments, which are professional publishing. They had the steepest decline, falling 24.2% from 2014 to 2017. Higher ed dropped about 18%, and the pre-K to 12 segment sales were off another 24%. Now, those declines were really not unexpected, I think, for people in the publishing industry. I think it's fair to say that those professional and higher ed and, and educational markets are facing pressures from a variety of fronts, from consumer expectations to technology and even policy changes like, for example, Common Core. But there's good news, too, because all three of those segments had relatively good 2017 sales performances, at least compared to 2016. Higher education was up about 0.5%. Professional books fell by less than 1%, so it suggests that there's a bottom there. And the pre-K to 12 category also declined just a modest 2.9%. So things may be looking up for the rest of the publishing industry outside of the trade segment. Well, in fact, you're right. So educational publishing, professional publishing, K to 12 market. What's left to reveal here, Andrew, is the details around trade sales. Tell us what you have then. Good news? Bad news? Yeah, well, let's not beat around the bush. I think um, there should generally be cause for concern around one stat that Jim points out, and that's the adult fiction segment. Over the last three years, adult fiction sales are down 10.5%. And that, to me, is an eye-opening statistic, especially given all the great fiction that we've seen come out in recent years. Now, that's the bad news. But the good news is that those declines overall have been offset by surging nonfiction sales. Uh, Revenue of nonfiction has jumped an astounding 24% since 2000, from 2014 to 2017. And I have to give you a word of caution there because Trump is not always going to be around. I mean, I don't think he will be. Please tell me he won't be. <laughs> anyway, that's, it's worth noting for publishers for many reasons. And we spoke about this recently on this podcast that, you know, Publishers have done very well with Trump-related titles, but at the same time, these you know Trump-infused news cycles and the, the election coverage, etc., has made it 
tougher to break out nonfiction by many accounts. It's just tougher to get a book into the headlines when there's, you know, new things coming out about the Trump administration every day, whether it's a new tape from Omarosa or a development in the, uh, you know, the Mueller investigation. So as the Trump effect starts to wane, and it will, I hope it will at some point, <laughs> we're going to see nonfiction sales start to balance out. Or will we see nonfiction sales start to balance out and see fiction sales start to rise again? It's possible, but I think it's going to take a while for us to know. Right. So you're telling me with this Trump effect, uh, nonfiction sales are unhinged. <laughs> I, I think we've just given her one more gratuitous plug here. The point is, though, Andrew Albanese, that all these numbers can't entirely be based on this Trump effect. What else do you think is playing into the, the soft fiction sales over the last few years? Totally. Absolutely agree. The fiction sales are facing significant pressure in a number of ways, uh, and maybe the least of which is the Trump effect. Um, I do think in terms of nonfiction, you can point to Trump as a driver of sales. I think that's clear. But when it comes to fiction, the market has so many variables. For example, we haven't had a real Harry Potter-like series or a Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, and you know, we've discussed this many times in this program, too. When you factor in the hits like that, or should I say factor out hits like that, uh, you know, those massive sales can make overall industry numbers look much, much better. Uh, but you also have to wonder how much the impact of the indie and self-publishing market is having on fiction, especially when it comes to the genres. Uh, and also the flattening ebook market for traditional publishers. You know, ebooks at one point, way back when, we can recall, we've talked about it on this show, they were predicted to dominate trade publishing. But, you know, since the early days of the ebook, since the Apple lawsuit, etc., when publishers managed to, to wrestle back pricing power, ebook sales have fallen about 37%, and ebook market share has dropped from 21.4% to 12.8% over the last three year period. And according to AAP figures, that's a pretty precipitous drop. In contrast, you know, we contacted, uh, PW contacted an Amazon spokesperson who told us that their Kindle sales in 2017 grew. Uh, they're growing again in 2018. They've been on a straight trajectory of growth, and that there's particular strength in Kindle Unlimited, which is Amazon. Amazon's uh, subscription service, of course, as well as titles from independent and self-publishing, as well as Amazon publishing. And none of those figures are reflected in AAP sales. So one final note, the decline in ebook revenue, we should note, has also been offset by gains in digital audio. And I've written and said this line pretty often over the last two years. But back in 2012 or 2013, when ebooks were you know in the news every day, who would have thought the digital audio would be driving the digital revenues of publishing houses in 2018. To me, that's just an astounding trend. When copyright clearance is beyond the book returns, Andrew Albanese reports that a survey of library ebook usage may belong in the fiction section. I'm Christopher Keneally with Copyright Clearance Center's Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, August 17th, 2018, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me as he does each week with news and insights on the world of publishing and reading. In July, Andrew McMillan announced without warning that it has changed its library ebook terms. 
and it now requires a four-month embargo on new titles expressly for its Tor imprint. Tor, of course, is the world's best-known publisher of science fiction. Macmillan officials said they made the change to test whether library ebooks are impacting retail ebook sales. But in Monday's issue, you report that librarians are telling you that Tor's rationale for making the change is more, well, fiction than science. That's exactly right. So our listeners will recall that in mid-July, we reported that Tor officials announced this change through their library vendors, for example, through an Overdrive. Uh, Overdrive, of course, is the largest service provider managing library ebook lending. Uh, and in that statement, Macmillan officials said that their data showed that for Tor, at least it mentioned, library lending was having a negative impact on retail ebook sales. Now, when I contacted Macmillan officials following that announcement, they backed off that statement somewhat. They basically said that they've been seeing a general decline in ebooks. Hello, we've been seeing that everywhere among the big five, uh, but they were going to use this as a test. This new window on Tor ebooks was going to be a test to see what role library lending might be playing in the decline of retail ebook sales. Right. So uh, I recall librarians didn't take that very well at all. No, not so much. <laughs> not really. You know, as of this recording, uh, Macmillan officials still have not answered for the follow-ups. And believe me, we have a lot of questions. For example, was was this a Tor policy that Macmillan signed off on? Was the uh, you know why test library ebooks when it comes to you know the retail market for ebooks? You know, are you testing anything else like price, for example? Still hoping to get Macmillan to give us a little more insight into that. But here's where it gets interesting. For Monday's issue, uh, I reached out to a number of library systems and to OverDrive to get some data of our own. And what I found was that libraries hold so few copies of Tor books, it seems almost impossible that you could even test the impact that a library lend of a Tor book would have on the retail ebook market. For example, according to OverDrive, the average Tor author has about 1.5 ebook copies available throughout the world. And that's factoring in the top of Tor's list as well. Uh, bestsellers like John Scalzi. In fact, Overdrive tells me that the most common number of library holdings for Tor author is zero. That is, a large chunk of Tor authors don't have any of their ebook copies available for checkout to libraries. So I decided to go a little further than Overdrive and look into individual library systems, and the numbers kind of bear that out. Uh, the New York Public Library, which is the second largest library system in the United States, millions and millions of users, they hold just 500 Tor titles in ebook and 1,168 copies. So the average author by those numbers would have about you know, just over two copies. And of course, if you factor in, you got some bestsellers there, probably the bottom of that list has zero copies. Uh, the Maryland Digital Library, which has you know, uh, serves a number of libraries in the state of Maryland, it's a large player here. They have only 45 titles of Tor books and 149 copies. Not far from New York City in Westchester, where Brian Kenny is the director, the, the consortium there, which consists of 38 Westchester libraries, large population center, they hold only 38 copies of Tor ebooks. And we looked at, you know, mostly large larger libraries. And again, what Overdrive stress applies here, most libraries, small libraries in this country won't have any copies. And if they do have copies, they're going to have very few, nothing like what we're talking about with NYPL here. So you get the picture, basically. It's almost impossible to see 
how these minor numbers of Tor eBooks could ever really be assessed to impact the the ebook market for an author, like a, the author's general bottom line on when it comes to library ebook lending. And you know, we even looked at a John Scalzi. John Scalzi is probably the best selling author that Tor has. He's a terrific science fiction writer. He had a new book come out called Head On, which was published in April. It's a great example of a front list book that would be windowed under this new policy. Well, the New York Public Library, for as large as it is, only has four ebook copies available. The Brooklyn Public Library has seven. Well, that's great reporting, Andrew. I think they call that data journalism. And it raises the question of why do librarians think they're being singled out here? If they have such small numbers of tour books in the stacks, so to speak, the virtual stacks, how much does it matter? Yeah, well, librarians are really scratching their head over this. Everyone that I spoke to just, you know, they just don't understand. It's not us. That's what they say. I don't know what they don't know what Tor is looking for here, but they feel like they're being blamed for something that has that they have no impact on. You know, in terms of actual service numbers, it probably isn't that big a deal for a library. But you know as well as I do that librarians feel great pressure to serve their readers. If one person comes to the desk or goes online and wants to get that Tor ebook, they're going to buy it. They want to get it. They want to be able to provide it. Even if it's going to be 60 bucks to buy that ebook for that one reader, they want to have it. And so what we see, what librarians are seeing in Tor's test, because the numbers are so small that they don't believe they could possibly be really impacting the general retail ebook market, what they see is a pretext for further changes to come in the library ebook market. Uh, there's no real reason, they say, to embargo frontlist ebook titles. For one, like I said, the numbers are just too small to assess a definitive impact from Tor. But Librarians also point to data that says, you know, they actually enhance sales. There have been a number of reports in recent years from Library Journal to Pew that suggest libraries offer greater discovery uh, and marketing. And look at it this way, too. Ebooks function just like print books in libraries, one user at a time. So really, all this is going to do is punish people who prefer or need to use ebooks to read. Uh, it's a service issue for librarians. Now, librarians now have to explain uh, why a user can come to the library to pick up a print copy of a new book, but not get the ebook of a new title. And considering that Amazon controls 80% of the retail ebook market for the major publishers like Macmillan, the question arises, why is Macmillan dinging libraries in such small numbers to potentially help Amazon, who dominates the market? I don't know that Amazon needs such a sweeping assist here. But I think what strikes libraries most is that after years of stability, this announcement came as a total surprise to them. And that suggests something else is going on here, that after some quiet time here, that further changes are about to be foisted upon the library ebook market soon. Indeed, and library advocate Sari Feldman has a column on that in Monday's issue of Publishers Weekly. Share with us the highlights from her piece. Sure. So Sari is, of course, the director of the Cuyahoga uh, County Library System in Cleveland. It's the fourth, I believe, largest library system uh, in the country. Sari was the first co-chair of the Digital Content Working Group that helped break the impasse over basic access to library ebooks, And she's now the ALA's uh, Digital Content Fellow. And, you know, she offers a really frank and honest take in Monday's issue on this whole thing. And she concedes that after years of stability and supposedly improved communication between libraries and publishers, that this latest episode with Macmillan uh, instituting this surprise change to its terms, that libraries may have dropped the ball here. 
And you, know, you can understand why. Nothing was happening in the library ebook market. Since about 2014, all the major publishers were in the game. They were making their full catalogs available for ebook lending, and no one, including Macmillan, was voicing any issues to libraries. No one was suggesting that library ebook lending was a problem for ebook retail sales. And during all this time, ebook retail sales, as we just discussed, were going down. Now, in 2017, the ALA's Digital Content Working Group, which Sari was the initial co-chair for, well, it sunsetted. It's now gone. After its six-year charter went away, the ALA decided not to renew it. The, the things were in a good enough state that they didn't need that kind of structure anymore. And the ALA over the last year has been kind of leisurely thinking about what to replace the Digital Content Working Group with. But it's clear that a communication void has now opened without that group. And into that void... We now have Macmillan's new policy changes. You know, Macmillan has introduced an embargo that librarians say are based on questionable claims, but the worst part is they never talked to libraries first about making the announcement. And they made this announcement via a vendor just days after the ALA annual conference when they were all together and they could have sat around and talked about this. Indeed, there was an ebook summit at this year's ALA annual conference in New Orleans. Uh, and everyone I've spoken to says Macmillan officials have still not reached out to librarians. An email address that was set up for feedback came back with a generic message. Uh, you know, and as Sari writes in her column, this has to be seen as a wake-up call for librarians. Despite our best efforts, she writes, it feels like librarians have been once again relegated to the kitchen instead of joining decision-makers in the boardroom. So certainly an issue to stay tuned to. So every Friday, Andrew Albanese from Publishers Weekly joins me here on CCC's Beyond the Book podcast. Thanks for the great reporting, Andrew, and have a great weekend. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, in a world where digital media dominate, physical books have managed to survive. According to PwC's Global Entertainment and Media Outlook for 2018 to 2022, print book sales will continue to grow even as home video, recorded music, and video games advance into oblivion. In a recent online report for Strategy and Business, media business reporter Bob Woods explored the possible reasons for print's Houdini-like escape from the diving bell of digital doom. Books are still in people's hands and we're flipping the pages and putting them up on our bookshelves and uh, it's, it's, it's really kind of remarkable the difference in that physical to digital media routes that the, the other two uh, have taken and, and books um, not quite the same. Gutenberg's Revenge, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, builders of unique solutions that connect content and rights in a contextually relevant way through our software and professional services. CCC helps navigate vast amounts of data to discover actionable insights, enabling people to innovate and make informed decisions. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on Beyond the Book. Thank you.